it was the night before. It was the it was the Joe Biden whatever the fuck Joe Biden was fucking doing. Oh, he he spoke at the at the conference. Room. Yeah, and I was there, and I, and I saw Dave White was like, "Hey guys, I'm gonna be in Delaware today covering Joe Biden." Not a joke. And I was like, "Oh shit, I'm gonna be in Delaware yeah, tonight covering the Joe Biden." <laughs> Dave White was gonna be there, and then like when he came, I was kind of like made sure that the only seat available was the one right next to me. <laughs> he's the best. But he's, you know who else we met on camp on Kerry's campaign? Who's like a super nice guy, but he's not like. Like, Dave Weigel is like an old-fashioned journalist in the 21st century. That's fair. Well, he's like the H.L. Mencken, like Taibbi, sort of like this. Right. I, I also met Ryan Taibbi, Grimm. Taibbi just wants to be Hunter Thompson so bad, and he doesn't even try to hide it, though. But he doesn't even do it. He does it. It just comes naturally to I, I I don't. I'm not shitting on Taibbi. I just think I that I fucking loved like, it. There, there'll, just, there'll be no fucking bad-mouthing of Matt Taibbi. He, he does, in the bunker. does good work. It's just, it's like, okay, yeah, I also read Hunter Thompson when I was 16, you know? <laughs> All right, everyone. Welcome to a uh, another wonderful episode of Highlands Bunker. We're in the shadow of Rockford Tower. We're in the belly of the beast. We hate these people, but hopefully we won't talk about them tonight. Because what we're talking about tonight is a little more casual, sort of something different. Um, I have uh, from the News Journal, uh, the favorite son of General Louisiana, <laughs> Adam Duvernay, and uh, <clears throat> I have my friend. Uh, Adam's also my friend. Uh, I have my friend from uh, the University of Delaware. He's an adjunct professor of English. He freelance writes. His, you can read his works in places such as Delaware Today magazine, Out and About magazine, etc. <laughs> um, Jordan Howe. Hello. Uh, Jordan uh, was also uh, the comms director for the Kerry Harris campaign and uh, introduced me to uh, Brianna Joy Gray. Uh, oh, that's right, I did. A nomad I? who is now the comms director, the national comms director for the Bernie Sanders campaign. That was a fun night. Yeah, that was. <laughs> I was like, I read current affairs. She was like, what do you know about it? I'm like, oh, I know all about it. So welcome, everyone. Um, we were just sort of talking about, maybe we can, we can get to it, talking about New Orleans in this book. Um, I hope what we sort of focus on is just telling stories about the area because uh, both of these um, esteemed gentlemen um, do that uh, on a regular basis, um, which is pretty cool. So if you've read anything about weather or just bizarre automobile accidents in the paper, you've probably read some of Adam's stuff. If you've read about uh, record shops and concerts and local local people, you've probably read some of Jordan's stuff. Um, so that's kind of what we're going to... Uh, what we're going to talk about. So, what's your experience in New Orleans, first of all? Because we kind of got we kind of got off track, but like, do you still? I mean, everybody gives you shit because you're from you know you're not from New Orleans, Orleans but nobody really is anyhow. Um, well, I mean, did you spend a lot of time there as a kid and as a younger person? Where'd you go to school? Like, I, I like I said, I know you're from Louisiana, just like the other crew, but I don't really know some of the backstory. Like Lex, we know is a is a Bayou man, a swamp person. What, well, are, what are you? Well, the clarification for uh, where I'm from is uh, I was raised in Kenner, Louisiana, which is part of what you would call the greater New Orleans metro area, uh, but it's its own municipality, and it is a couple of miles outside of town. It is a suburb, and you know anyone who's from New Orleans proper will shit on you for being from there, as do my friends. Uh, 
But, uh, you know, I always fall back on the fact that right on my birth certificate, it says born in rural New Orleans. So for me, that's always been good enough. Uh, I actually, you know, I went to high school in New Orleans. I commuted from Kenner into the city. I went to Jesuit High School, which is a absolutely prestigious uh, Catholic all-boys college preparatory school. Say no more. It was, uh, I was educated uh, by priests uh, very much of my life, but the Jesuits being uh, particular scholars as they are, uh, I thought I got a good education there. You know, I spent, uh, misspent much of my youth uh, crawling around Bourbon Street uh, and other portions of the city. Uh, as anybody who's been to town will tell you, um, Bourbon Street hasn't been Bourbon Street for decades. But when I was a kid, 15 to 17, uh, and a little beyond, you know, before you could get into bars, it was really easy to just uh, walk into one. And uh, if they threw you out, there was one next door. So you could always find a place to get somebody to buy you a drink. Uh, one of the reasons I like to hang out at the end of Bourbon Street where the gay pubs are. I could always get a drink there. You're, I mean, you have bear, you have a, like a bear tendency. I see it. I could see how you could, you could, you could parlay that into three for one. This was before the three beard. for one. This was before the beard. Um, a pre-beard. Yes. This is pre-beard. Uh, most people don't remember that, that, that phase of my life. And I wish, I wish I didn't either. <laughs> we are, I will say this and, and this, I mean, you, you really have to say this and I do, I, I make a great effort, um, to keep this very sort of varied. And that's kind of why we're here talking about something different tonight. Just trying to make it, um, kind of fun, but we do have, uh, four gentlemen, uh, Carl's behind the knobs, all, all bearded, um, We'll say, you know, some of them are, are journalists, so they can't say what their sort of political affiliation is, but we share a certain aesthetic, we'll just say like that. Um, so if you're not ready for a lot of, like, like bro talk, you know, maybe switch over to, like, the Slate Culture Gab Fest or something like that. You know, I read, I read an article, or I, as, as I do, I read the headline recently of an article. Uh, it wasn't on anything important, but it said something along the lines of, uh, hey, guys, uh, beards aren't cool anymore. And my first reaction was a, who the fuck asked you? <laughs> yeah, nobody. Like, here's the thing I look at. Like, I mean, Walt Whitman had a beard, and then they weren't cool, and then they were cool again. So I'm just fucking keeping it, and I'm just saying this is just my shit. That's just I don't know. I can't. I, I can't. I can't see myself shaving again. But you know, maybe I will at some point. I don't. I, I just I, shaved my beard. I had a Stomberg beard. A beard. Uh, yeah, you had like a full just a few time. weeks ago. Yeah. You went. Now, did you go all the way down to the or did you just go like thin it out? Uh, I just thinned it out. Yeah, I, I haven't shaved my face in maybe seven, eight years, and I have to think it's because I'm really ugly under there. And I mean, I'm ugly all over, but this this particular part of me is just. I mean, you're mostly ugly on the inside, though. Well, listen, I mean that's absolutely true. Um, but can I, you can can you um, so it? I think it's when we first met, but I'm I'm not positive. But there was like a cookout um, at the house on. Uh, it's like 16th or 17th Street out there, like in the on the other side of the triangle. And I think we, we call that Washington Times. So. Is that what we call it? I mean, you're you're with the paper. I don't know what it's called. <clears throat> and we one of the uh, one of the ladies that lived in one of the homes where we were having this cookout had a son, or maybe she was visiting. He was maybe seven or eight or something, maybe ten, and he was going out to play this sporting event. So before he was going out, he was hanging out by the grill, and you were trying to con- you can had convinced him that like either birds couldn't fly, 
or like some. Do you remember I what do, you? I do remember exactly what you're talking. Can about. you tell me the story? Because I was I knew you were coming in tonight, and I was trying to remember what you what you did to this poor kid, and it was it was sick. It was well, really sick. Uh, well, I just I have uh, a tendency in all things uh, to amuse myself, generally at the expense of others, and uh, I don't know. I, I guess I could talk to kids fine. I I think the problem comes that I don't like to pander to them. I I think that they are going to eventually be adults and that they should understand that the world is pain now. So it doesn't take a lot of, you know, I don't get on their level very often, but this child I remember was talking to me about birds for some reason. And in my mind, it just occurred to me that if I told this kid who is six to seven years old, that there aren't birds, that birds aren't real. How the fuck is he going to prove me wrong? What's he going to do to convince me an adult that there are birds? So I told him, no, you didn't see any birds. Birds aren't real. Those aren't real things. And he proceeds to spend the next 45 minutes trying to point them out to me or, you know, otherwise convince me that there are birds. He's running all over the house. He's telling the adults about the birds. I told him if he doesn't bring me one, I'm not going to believe him. And to me, that was the ultimate because it was a win-win situation. He was either going to spend all the time away from me trying to hunt this bird or he was going to bring one into our friend's house and release it, which to me would have been <laughs> the best. That was what I was really I just for. remember watching this whole, that took about like this, you know, back and forth for maybe 20 or 25 minutes. And I just remember thinking, he convinced this kid that birds don't exist. And I remember turning to either me, I think Joe, Peter, Joe, uh, Joe Peterson was there or somebody, and he was just like, Mr. Adams trying to say there's no birds. I don't know. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. Mr. Adam is a strange, strange individual. He was like, I think I'm going to try to find a bird. I'm like, this is going to get good. <laughs> and it did. It did. Got really, it got really good. Well, you know, kids get fixated on, um, on things. And, and you know what? It's kind of, it's, it, you know, in a, in, a, in a better way than just messing with children. Uh, it's kind of nice that this child who was told obvious bullshit decided that, like, I'm going to prove this this guy wrong. I'm going to make sure he understands what I know intrinsically. He didn't doubt himself for a minute. He never he never was convinced there were no birds, but he didn't know exactly quite how to prove it to me. And you know what? Maybe he'll be another clickbait journalist one day writing stories about birds. The the uh the the, the postscript to this story is I brought some food over. Somebody made wings. Somebody made beautiful Indian wings. I forget who made it. They were great. Um, made all this food, but I had this sausage and I only had maybe like these six pieces of like this handmade sausage. So the kid left and he was like, I'd like one of those. Can you save it for when I go to my game and come back with basketball or whatever it was? So I said, yeah, sure. And I save it. I put it to the side. Everybody eats. You know, if 90 minutes later, the kid comes back and he goes, Mr. Rob, where's my sausage? Fucking Lex ate it. <clears throat> I was like, Lex, he was like, man, it was, it looked good. I'm like, what's this kid? You know, Lex went back to his place and got a fucking hot dog. Made the kid a hot dog and convinced him it was the same fucking thing. That's um, that's the difference between Lex and me is Lex will make you a hot dog. Mm. I will tell you life is pain. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, Jordan, like, so you're, you're an out of town, man. You have a one perspective. We're going to interrogate. I don't know where you're. Are, are you local? Where Are you from here? Uh, moved here from Savannah, Georgia. I uh, came here for grad school in English, and I spent uh, eight years doing that. Um, at one time, in a former life, I was supposed to become an English professor. Well, I still technically am an English professor, but I was supposed to teach literature. And um, 
And I don't know if you've heard that uh, if there's one profession that is crumbling even faster than journalism, it is tenure track English, um, you know, research. Um, you know, by the time I got through the program, it takes you know, several years to do the master's, like a research project. Um, you know, my heart really wasn't in it. There weren't really any jobs. You know, my wife and I, we had made the move to Wilmington. You know, we just like, really loved the area and uh, loved our friends. And so we decided that instead of continuing to, I don't know, chase what seemed to be an impossible dream, it's like, you know, put down roots here. Well, we had already lived. As Adam said, years. I mean, life yeah. is life is pain. Well, I, have, yeah. I, I have a question: <laughs> is, is is the reason that these these tenure tracks are disappearing uh, because old books have been read? Are we are we out of things to interpret? Uh, no, it's just um, well, several things. Um, most English departments, the number of majors has shrunk by, you know, upwards of 75%. You know, you're, if you used to have 400 English majors at any given time, uh, now a lot of schools might only have, uh, 100, uh, and universities are, uh, you know, less inclined to spend, um, uh, to, you know, to invest in as many full-time professorships as they need and increasingly, um, rely on part-time and adjunct labor. And I'm an adjunct, uh, and I'm actually really fortunate because, um, you know, everyone at UD has been, you know, you know, they've been great. Um, they pay well for being an adjunct professor. Um, you know, they actually pay a living wage, which is not the case for a lot of colleges around here. A lot of colleges you're looking at sometimes under $2,000 for teaching a course. Um, and, you know, so you do the math. How many courses a year would you have to teach? I don't do math. In order to, yeah, yeah, right. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, when people hear adjunct professor, they, they, they I, I mean, I do. I, I just assume that person's just getting robbed. Yeah. So it's, it's nice to know that it's not, the, it's not a blanket case anyway. Yeah. And again, like UD, UD is ahead of the curve in that regard. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, but like somewhere along the line, like I was just like, man, I really just want to write stories about Wilmington. And so I wrote a story. It was in um, 2017. I was just, I, was finishing up the PhD or had finished up the PhD. And I was just like, man, I just like, I just want like to relax for the next month. And so while I was relaxing, I uh, wrote an article about the 68 Wilmington riots and sent it to Delaware today. They did not print it. The editor said, I'm not gonna, I don't, we were like, we're not gonna be able to print this, but I like your style. Wanna write something else? And I'm like, sure, what the fuck? Who cares? And he's like, go write about this restaurant. And I was like, okay. And uh, so, like, really, like, you know, my like doing this was almost completely accidental. I like, I had no, I didn't know what I was gonna do. Uh, I thought maybe I'd just keep adjuncting at UD for a while. And so I just, um, I don't know. Like, it's been, it's been, it's been a pretty, it's been a cool ride. I'm just like, I feel like I have this love affair with um, industries that are in duress, um, and I kind of love it though. Like, it feel, I think it's, uh, you know, going around and just talking to people about their lives and asking questions. I mean. It's kind of a kind of an awesome thing to do. Well, as far as the decline of uh, literature studies, I, I blame those damn STEM students. Um, you know, and there's it's interesting you say that because I mean, you know, I'd like to think that there's a correlation. Uh, there's a correlation happening. Like we have the humanities and being able to think, um, you know, uh, you know, critically about problems in the world. Like you know, the humanities don't solve problems. You know, they're the problematizers. They, they think about problems. problems. So they create problems. <laughs> um, you know, hey, and look where we are right now. Um. Yeah, well, I, we'll do a little editor's note. I mean, that's a, a huge part of Marxism is, is dialectics. And it's just like you have to 
sort of uh, understand the, the 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 nature of things being the opposite forces. Like this is pulling this way because of this, and this is pulling this way because of this, and that's just the natural thing. There's natural paradoxes and things that are working against each other. So I always think about that when you say it. it's it's a very interesting. Uh, very interesting idea. Well, I think there's also a lot in common between what's happening in, uh, you know, and at least from what I read, because I will not, I'll just like go, like since it's early in the show, just go on the record and say this, like I do not put myself at all in the same category uh, as journalist as, uh, you know, Adam over here. No, neither do I. Um, no, I don't think anybody in this room does. You know, uh, <laughs> I, you know, it was, uh, you know, by, by very, I would like, it does not like, I don't like live off it. Um, it's almost like, you know, uh, not like a hobby because I really genuinely enjoy it. Maybe one day I can make it into a career. But as my wife asked me, or somebody asked me at one time, um, are you a reporter? And I said, well, yeah, but not in like the journalistic sense. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I, don't I mean, I give Adam, I give you know, Adam a bunch of shit. So you're, you're sort of able to pick. And I actually want to talk <laughs> about the 68 riots because I, I, I'm almost certainly the oldest person here and I'm the person who's from here. So I'd actually like to talk about that. So let's put a pin in that. But the thing about Adam, and I tease him sometimes in this in, in person and online. But like you don't like you go to the thing that's happening, like the human interest story that's happening. And sometimes it's the weather. Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes it's not fun, and it's actually uh, like dark. But like, but you you sort of have the same you 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 you. you you use the same tools and have the same energy and present it in the same way. Like this is happening. This is what it is. And it's either like, you know, a tree fell down or it snowed or, you know, four people in this family died in a car accident. But it's, it's, it, I actually, it's interesting. That sort of aspect of it is very interesting to me. Well, you train yourself in objectivity um, to be a, you know, professional quote unquote uh, reporter um, it's part of your your earliest training to think about it that way but it's also important for you know maintaining that level of credibility that no one actually really be really believes you have anymore uh, but when it comes to you know my energy this is I have a standard energy um, it is the one you're hearing now uh, but when it comes to differences between you know showing up at the ice cream festival and doing reporting there, and showing up when four people have been shot on a street in Wilmington. Uh, to me, my job, which is a breaking news reporter, so I'm kind of bouncing around from this and that, but uh, with an intense focus on crime, because that's probably the most important piece of the news that I do. You, uh, you just try to present what's there. Someone told me once that, you know, newspaper journalism is the first draft of history. And I've always tried to kind of think about it that way. I like to consider myself a witness, especially when it's something that's nasty and ugly, which I've been to a lot of over my years. And it's a matter of presenting it in a way that it can be preserved. Even a professional journalist might not get it right 100% of the time, especially if I'm standing on a scene where 35 minutes ago, four people got shot. Those bodies might already be you know, off the street to the hospital to the morgue as the case determines. But what you present, depending on where it's archived, is this first draft of history. I, I, I think of myself as this, this witness who says, look at this ugliness. This is what we're dealing with. And not everybody can. 
I, I've, I've found myself able to. A couple of stories over the past couple of years have really hit me on a personal level. But even then, you still got to just power through it and offer the same kind of telltale, these are the facts that you can. Well, I know the, the one we talked about personally is, <clears throat> I guess it was, Dor- it was maybe in March because I think the, the basketball was on. But we were talking about the story of the woman who was like killed and dismembered in Tia Sussex Tucker. County. Yes. What is her name? Tia Tucker. Tia Tucker. And um, I was fascinated by it just because, you know, <clears throat> there are unexplained deaths, there are murders, there are shootings, there are car accidents, but this was particularly bizarre. And you guys sort of broke a little um, detail about it that made it sort of just compelling, um, just figuring out that they that they had some sort of they were chopped up in some fashion um and it was just uh yeah it was it was one of the ones that i remember from the last say six months but i don't know you could because you mentioned a few that really struck you and i was wondering if that was one of them or wasn't. no that wasn't one of the ones that and when i say struck me i mean you know kind of got me where i live in a personal sense uh the tia tucker case was was really interesting one because i got it as a tip on one of my days off, and it was in Laurel, Delaware, which is hours away from where we live here in Wilmington. But it was such a... The tip told me, essentially, that this woman had been butchered, and the words, like a deer, were used. And so I kind of pulled my boots on, and I called my editor halfway there already, and I told him, look, I'm doing this. I'm going down here. I'm going to knock on doors. When I got down to this, uh, you know, this area outside of Laurel, I, I mean, I, I immediately started knocking on, well, before I even started knocking on doors, I kind of parked my truck and got out. And the first thing that happened was a guy in a Jeep drove by me and he's like, can I help you? You know, what's going on? And I told him and he knew exactly what I was talking about. And everybody in that neighborhood knew exactly what I was talking about. The rumor had spread from day one. It had happened on a Saturday morning. Delaware, and I was working that Saturday morning. And so when did you get there? I got there on Monday, or was it Sunday? It was either Sunday or Monday. I think it was actually Sunday. It was the day after. Because Delaware State Police put out a press release um, early in the morning on Saturday that said that, you know, a body was found on the side of the road in Laurel uh, early in the morning. That was about the extent of the information, and I understand, you know, where that comes from. Uh, (laughs) Part of the... But my, my initial reaction, having seen many of these press releases and dealing with many of these stories, is jogger, early morning, hit by a car, killed. Now, none of that was in the press release, but this is my immediate assumption. But I don't have more facts than that, so we, we put it up. But then I get this tip, and the next day I go down. And so, like I said, I met this guy in this Jeep, and he knew exactly what I meant. He had heard that, too. So had everybody. But I couldn't prove it. You know, uh, I couldn't prove it other than hearsay and rumors. You know, even the people... Um, whose house the body was found in front of had only heard this thing. Um, But they had all heard immediately. So that wasn't enough to print. But then our colleague, uh, our Josephine Peterson, who has recently left Delaware to greener pastures someplace else on the (laughs) West Coast. That's right. I I was at her uh, her growing away. she She was keen enough to find... A really interesting document that none of us had really seen before. I don't. I'm not entirely even sure where she pulled it from, but it was essentially a entry into a database concerning missing people, and 
all the details about it fit um from and i mean and i mean simple details <laughs> time place laurel delaware body you know it it said you know I'll, I'll paraphrase here you know one or more hands missing one or more limbs missing so these things you know made sense and it was some kind of FBI database or some kind of it, national missing it, persons thing. It was a missing persons database that is associated with the FBI and sort of curated by a university in Texas. And I took this document after Josephine found it and I brought it to DSP and I said, well, what? <laughs> you know, I had asked the day before, hey, guys, I'm hearing a bunch of rumors they wouldn't they just they, gave me the runaround. Well, you know, they 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 don't they don't comment on in active investigations, right. which are words I hear very often. Um, but when I present them this document, they hadn't they didn't know. These the, the public information officers didn't know about this document. Um and I you know, they I, I, I don't remember exactly what their response to to be asking about this document was, but we called up the curators of the document, and I believe I called first the Bureau of Justice Statistics, which is part of the FBI, uh, or part of the Department of Justice, and they sent me straight to the guy who curated the whole damn database, and I mean, this guy had the, he was he was in Texas, but he had the most Nashville accent I've ever heard, and it was beautiful to talk to this southern boy like myself about this stuff, and just... I'm not in Delaware. You're you, there are a lot of barriers to public records, especially when it comes to police investigations. It uh, there's really only a couple of pieces of like public record documents you can get before anything goes to trial. So to hear this guy basically answer my call and then tell me what he told me, which was that yeah, someone from the Delaware Medical Examiner's office inserted this data yesterday or today, and. It was enough for us. We were we we said that with the facts in the document, with the confirmation that this document that says this dismembered body was found here at this time, like state police said there was a body there, it all matched up and we were happy to publish it. It took, you know, talked with my editors, we made sure we felt good about it, and we published it, or before we published it, that particular document on that particular database disappeared. As soon as I confronted the state police about it and said, what does this document mean? They didn't, t I don't believe they took it off the database, but they switched it from a public viewing to a private viewing. So it was no longer just yeah, easily accessible, but we still had it. So the, the long, the long story, which has already been run long, but it, it was a few more weeks before, but it, when they arrested, um, the man that's accused of the crime, uh, one of the charges was mutilation of corpse. Or, I'm sorry, it was abuse of a corpse is the charge. And I called state police and I said, okay, what kind of abuse? Mutilation. So, again, it was, you know, it was an unfortunate story because, you know, this woman was, was shot, killed, and then brutalized. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I can make some conjecture just from the reporting that I read because the story of her last couple days is sort of weird where she's like in a... She's in the trailer or a small home with a couple probably doing drugs, I assume. I don't know if that was said. I don't know anything. But it just got, right. No, no, again, this is conjecture. We, we always draw a line of demarcation here, or I say something like commentary or conjecture. If anybody has any problems with uh, Adam as a journalist being here and me talking like this, please send an email to um, HighlandsBunker uh, at gmail.com, and I'll fucking ignore it. <clears throat> 
Um, yeah, but it, it's a, it was a fascinating story because, you know, then the, I guess when she, then she went missing and when the cops went to question this couple where, that she was like the last people that had seen her, they were like packing up to leave. <laughs> that was a little, we, we were, we were, is there that were, the story? Yes. There were, there were several other court documents, both from here and I believe it was Virginia where he was actually arrested. That we that were accessible, especially once he was arrested and extradited back here to Delaware, we could get his affidavit of probable cause, which gave us some more details, um, as well as the fact that he had been arrested the day one of the days in which state police said this murder may have happened. There was a range of dates, um, so there were several documents that we could get um, that kind of illustrated the further story. And you know, it's it was believed that uh, Tia Tucker was with this guy, Joseph Beck, um, at some period of time immediately before she appeared on the side of this road. So there's still, you know, there's still answers to be had here, but we were, we were fortunate with that to kind of, you know, get some news that a lot of times isn't quite available. Wait, so had the police identified her? No. They hadn't. Okay. No. Uh, we were, we were, aware of the fact that and i think you even brought this I up actually to me. as soon as you i was following it, it was, and as soon as i read the, the when you guys published that you had gotten this report and it said that they were missing one or more limbs or hands and there was other identifying i don't know if it was tattoos but there was some other sort of identifying mm -hmm. information and i sent you a message i'm like Dude, this is kind of fucked up. Like, what if somebody recognizes this, recognizing that doesn't know that their friend or their daughter or whatever was, you were like, no, they already know. Well. They sort of knew. By the time you did that, you there, it was pretty clear that they they knew. They were about a half a day or two days ahead of you. We, 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 did, we did have good information that the family was not going to be informed by our reporting. But on the same track, I remember talking to my editors about that. And, you know, it's, you, you, there's a, there's a convention that you, um, generally they, the police make it easy for you because they won't release the name of a victim of a, of a fatal crash, of a fatal shooting, of anything in which there is a body. Uh, they won't release the names of who that person is until next of kin is notified, which is fair because you don't want people to learn about, you know, this kind of brutal news in the newspaper, but in the same respect, it was not entirely clear that this body was identifiable. Um, and so you have to wonder, you know, maybe they do need to learn about it that way. Because well, my, you know, my, my, what I was thinking about was if there is, uh, you know, clearly any threat to public safety, like if there is, there's literally, a, could be a murderer on the loose, uh, you know, why would they withhold it? Like, what would be the rationale for withholding that information from the public? Yeah, I don't I don't have a lot of insight into the state police thinking on that. Um, I think, you know, they I think they appropriately played some of that information pretty close to the chest. I know they were or I imagine that they were trying to avoid a panic. Um, I don't think that they wanted, you know, that information just spreading without more context that they could provide. Um, but you know, there was, there was never a point where I presented them with information while I was reporting on that case that they could, they denied anything that I said. And, you know, frankly, for me as a reporter, you know, if I'm, if I'm talking to an authority and I'm telling them I'm about to print something and they know it's wrong, God, I hope they'll stop me because like the idea of like 
me printing false information like keeps me up at night for one i do my best you know to make sure everything's accurate but you know putting something out like, like that and it being wrong that would be a disservice to the public i will we were... i will say this too and and i don't know if you remember you telling me this but i think it was when we were talking outside that night and we were having a sort of a conversation like this about the details of this reporting <clears throat> and you said you know the report said uh something I want to paraphrase, but it was it was pretty particular. It said missing one or more limbs. That was, the, was something like that. And so you had written the story, and it was great to go out, and the editor's there, and you're like, what if this person was an amputee? And you're like, oh, that, that, seems, was, that seems far-fetched. That was actually, well, that was actually. This is, but, the, but that's an interesting, even, even somebody who would try to pick apart a story, I hadn't even thought of that. And I'm like, oh, that's pretty interesting. Well, it was me. It was me. I um, I was just about to publish the information, and I mean, I hate. To, I don't want to trivialize this at all because no, I, but I don't think. Point, I, but, I hope. I hope nobody believes I, I, we're doing that. I'm, I'm just, not doing it at all. No, no, I don't think we are. But I just want to. I, I like right before I was able to publish this information. Like I said, you know, we went we went through a lot to make sure that we felt good about what we were saying, and right before we did, I realized that missing one or more limbs in this document what if she didn't have them to begin with and that was just a matter of fact statement or a statement that did not have any bearing on a homicide we published because like i said that, that's did, what the report said it so did it, seem it yeah. did seem a little far-fetched but it was it was it was the kind of you know mental gymnastics i'm putting myself through before i publish a story to try and make sure that you know all the bases are covered I I'm actually interested in um, some of the Wilmington stuff too, because just like Carl does, just like Jordan does, I do, and actually we have four different disparate neighborhoods represented here. But uh, because you're the breaking news guy, you're running out uh, in the middle of the night and covering um, you know shootings and messes that happen in Wilmington, and I'm wondering whether. You have any impression in general about just reporting these incidents and what your just your general impression is? And Jordan, too, again, being in Wilmington, uh, Carl told a very interesting story months ago about sort of listening to that, um, listening to a shooting outside his house, which was pretty strange. But I just wonder what your, what your overall impressions are about it. So I've lived in Wilmington since I moved here about three years ago. and You're North Wilmington, right? I am in North Wilmington. I'm in the Ninth Ward. Yeah. yeah, North Wilmington, like around Washington Street, right? Yeah, not North Wilmington. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, not not like in Fairfax. Fake <laughs> North Wilmington. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, like uh, we we when I say Wilmington, I mean Wilmington. You know, but yeah, I mean like like I said, I've been here since uh, for three years, uh, which means that I was doing crime reporting during the all time high. Of 2017, 197 people shot, 32 people yeah, killed. You're, you're, you were the, you were a you were a murder town, quote unquote, uh, local reporter. Almost. I I I was on many 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 shooting scenes, um, and because of where I live, I heard many 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 gunshots, which is often you know. I mean, if I hear gunshots close enough to my house, I'm the reporter on scene. I put my boots on and I go. Um, fortunately, I don't have to work a lot of nights anymore. So uh, my and also it has been significantly quieter in Wilmington for gunfire. Uh, a lot of people don't recognize that, uh, whether it's just because they actually live where there's a lot of noise, including gunshots, even if there's no shooting. Um, what do you attribute that to? Do you, or do you attribute it to anything? Well, do, do I attribute what? The perception? The, 
No, the perception. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to attribute a perception to anything. That's an abstract thought. But like, as someone who covers these, you said it's like it's just the obviously it's been less. Seventeen, eighteen's been less. Maybe we have a little blip, but but the general trend is significantly less gun violence or gunshots and violence. And I didn't know whether or not you saw anything on the streets that said, you know, I think it might be this. Statistically speaking, the, you know, kind of the high watermark was around October, November 2017. And if you ask the Wilmington Police Department, and I don't think unrealistically speaking, uh, Chief Tracy had been here for a little while. He had brought some new strategies. They attribute a lot of their success to that. Uh, but there's also the question of how many of these people went to jail? How many of these people were dead uh, or shot. Uh, there's there's a lot of different things that had some confluence, certainly. Now, I don't have the full scope or picture of gun violence in Wilmington. They're actually Because well, we still have a low clearance rate for homicides. We're, we do. Uh, there, there are reporters there are reporters at the News Journal who are actually much closer and better at these uh, you know analysis stories when it comes to crime than I am. A lot of times I'm the guy who's there when it happens or as close to when it happens as possible, but... But again, that's that's sort of what's interesting is you can look at the numbers and say, oh, the clearance rates are still bad, but they're doing these other things to sort of suppress some of like the youth gangs. Because, you know, there's you know, 17, 18 year old kids who just are, you know, because of situations that are in all these kinds of gangs, it's terrible. <clears throat> so there's an impression you could get from your perspective, just sort of covering these on the street as it happens, I, that, I, you, that maybe people wouldn't get just looking at numbers or doing analysis of what Tracy or the or the or, or the Przicki's office is going to tell them. Well, I would I would tell you that something that shouldn't be news to anybody um, in Wilmington. The impression that I get, as well as the reporting has bared out, that a lot of the times you get shot in Wilmington over personal beef. And it's it's an unfortunate uh, thing that, you know, a lot of it had to do with the advent of social media, which I just, you know, I mean, I grew up in a time where social media was, was coming of age. You know, I'm, I grew up in a time where there was no internet. Right, exactly. I mean, I remember, I mean, I'm 30, I'm going to be 31 next My dad month. got our first computer by trading a car for it. I remember the AOL dial-up tone. That's, 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 that I am this old. Um, but... These things, these things have allowed people to trade insults at, you know, the speed of light, and it matters. Um, part of the thing is, is that I mean, like Wilmington certainly has violence that happens in a home. Um, there was just down the street from me on Washington Street, um, a guy kind of lost it and stabbed up a lot of people one night, and you know, one person died, somebody died defending, a, or somebody got hurt defending a baby. And that was an inside the home incident. You know, there was there have been others that have been stabbings or shootings that have been inside the home. But the vast majority of gun violence and deadly violence that happens in Wilmington, just statistically speaking and anecdotally speaking, is you're on the street and then you get shot. And it's not, you know, those people can run away pretty quickly and not always get caught, but the impression often is that, you know, these are people who knew each other. Yeah. I, that's, that's always my impression, but I, I, I am interested in hearing about people who sort of are reporting on it and sort of get more information than, than I do. But my impression, even when, and again, this is something for Jordan, even when it happens in a, a neighborhood like cool Springs, Tilton park, you know, it's like, yeah, we're, we're not involved in that. They're, those are beefs that are happening on the street. 
that are terrible, but they're a whole different thing than people perceive them to be. Well, to be specific also, like Tilton Park sometimes classifies itself as a separate neighborhood from Cool Spring. I'll yeah, probably well, get in those, trouble for fuck, saying that. Fuck those people. Yeah, but, Dude, so I'm from, I've, my bona fides are clear in Wilmington. <laughs> and I don't. I know the people in Tilton Park think they're in Tilton Park and people in Cool Springs are in Cool Springs. I say it's all Cool Springs. And again, you can email uh, the HighlandsBunker at gmail.com and I'll just ignore it because I don't care. Well, because the, the south side of uh, Til- Tilton Park is you know really more like Hilltop and then the north side is really more like Cool Spring. And uh, but like you know we've had in the last four years we've had uh, you know three murders near the park and um, you know some of them uh, like are clearly retaliatory right and they yeah, kind of insert sort of these of cycles it. and it turns into these cycles of violence where then you know that ends up then you end up seeing like a um, you know retaliatory hit let's say down on like second and Scott or fifth or something and like um, what was it with um, you know over on the east side there have been reportings about these kind of cycles of violence among you know, young teenagers have over internet beef. Now, no, you yeah. live in Tiltlandia. Yeah, I do. I'm on the I'm on the corner of uh, Boop. yeah Seventh uh, and Franklin. Well, I remember the, the 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 story that I imagine that you're talking about, and I think it must have been two three years ago. Um, there was a shooting near the park. I believe it was a fatal shooting. Yeah. And then the day after, perhaps at a memorial, a street side memorial, which are all too common in Wilmington, somebody else gets shot. Yes. And and, and Clearly related. And there um, were children on the street, too. There were people, like, attending this memorial, and a car came up and just started shooting bullets. Well, the, it, um, I think also two or three people were wounded. I, I, I wish I remembered the case better. I did do yeah. some reporting on it, but I've, I've written a lot of shooting stories since. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, but I think the, that's a, there was a really bad one in West Center City, maybe, and a kid, maybe, they were still in intensive care for a long time. I, I think they, that actually got a good result, and the, the kid didn't die, but it was the same thing. It was, like, some beef... And a bullet went through the door and, you know, hits like a three-year-old kid. But again, it's, it's, uh, that's, that's the funny thing is that if you, if, if we put it in the right frame, I think, uh, and look at it a little different, it can be addressed in a different way than just like people outdoing. I think, I think there's a lot of misinterpretations and misperceptions about what's actually happening. Yes. I mean, well, what, what I was going to, what I was going to remark is that it was when I was reporting on this particular incident in, um, Cool Springs slash Tilton Park. Uh, it's, uh, it's Cool Springs. Yeah, that's right. That's true. Uh, according to the Wilmington 2020 plan, it's called West Hill. Who the fuck calls that neighborhood West Hill? Have you ever like, heard I it feel like West some, Hill? I can't. I can't. Honestly, <laughs> well, I, I would can't. like you. I would like. A, I would like uh, some real estate people to come in here and tell me what the what the uh, demarcation is between West Center City and Trinity. Because it's just like, I guess it depends on how much you want to sell the place for. I don't understand how, how you have the most, the chummiest neighborhood in all of Wilmington. I mean, uh, when I was reporting on this, I mean, if you guys weren't singing Kumbaya in that park every night, I don't know what you were doing. It was, and there was, that was, that was really part of the story. And, you know, it, it is in a sort of like, oh, well, this doesn't happen in our neighborhood kind of way. And also, this neighbor, this doesn't really define us. Why uh, the the camaraderie that was going on over there, you know, isn't something I've experienced, you know, in other neighborhoods. Now, in other neighborhoods, it's a different kind of love. But this was very uh, well. Let me just, let me just tell you, it felt very familiar to my suburban upbringings. You know. Well, what do you mean? Uh, well, here, I'm going to ask you what you mean only because, like, I actually look at that. I you know I know a lot of people who live in, in in Cool Springs and Tilden Park and they're all sort of like 
like that. They have a pretty good uh, sort of awareness of what's going on. They, uh, they're they not uh, reactionary, and they're the opposite of reactionary, uh, which is different than, like you said, a lot of other neighborhoods. Like the neighborhood you live in, there's love, but it's different. The neighborhood I live in, unfortunately, that's why we have the bunker here. We're behind enemy lines. Most of these people are garbage. Uh, they, you know, they see people and call the cops. They're, they're like the people who call the cops on the, on the, on the folks that are barbecuing in the park. We don't call the cops in my neighborhood. Uh, Right. Well, I mean, I don't, but you know what I mean? And, but you're, but I think you're right. And it's an interesting dynamic that the, the folks in, in Cool Springs, Dillon Park have, have probably one of the better sort of, um, uh, they're more aware of sort of what's happening. I, I, I mean, there are great neighborhood and civic associations that are active in Wilmington, but in terms of participation and all-around participation, I mean, I think you guys have maybe got the best. And I think it, it, it's on a, it's more on that kind of like next-door neighbor level than like civic association. We have a meeting once every two months yes. kind of thing. And I, I will say had... this as well, just another editor's note. Jordan is wearing the Cool Springs Tilden Park Civic Association t-shirt <laughs> as we... Are sitting here recording this. Uh, I was just say like uh, you know we've had, I think we've been really we've been really fortunate to have some good neighbor uh, strong neighborhood leaders um, that make that you know that you know that takes effort right um, it takes uh, you know, it takes planning um, you know it takes resources uh, you know and that's kind of, that's you know uh, Nathan Durant for example um, do you guys know Nathan have you ever met Nathan I don't know if I have. Um, uh, you know Drew, right? Drew Saris? Yeah, of course well, you know course, Drew Saris. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know some. Um, he's also a chess player, and he and Drew just did the um, uh, the um, the human chess tournament over at uh, was it Kingswood Community Center? Yeah, I think. yeah. I saw a photo, and I saw. Uh, I spoke to Drew. He actually dressed up as like a uh, like a, an 18th century uh, socialist. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't remember the whole story. How, he told how many me, of there are there? Many, I suppose. <laughs> you know what? We're not going to go down that rabbit hole right now. But but it's been you know it's uh, that that's we rented there for probably like five years and then we ended up moving there and uh, you know we just we all just kind of hang out like you know sometimes you know there are some things I don't quite do as much as like others like I do like if I hear like you know gunshots or something that I'll certainly like kind of look around but um uh you know but I like you know usually don't make a point of like going up to a crime scene and like uh, almost um. Uh, like doing like crime tourism type of things like Leave that. Leave it to the professionals. Please. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, and some neighbors do. And um, and and I will say like I know that also that can bring people together like experiences like that. Um, and you know we just uh, you know we support each other. And I will say this is, I think that there might actually be something like a little like magical about that neighborhood. No, really, because uh, some of the research that I've been doing about this neighborhood, it's always been a quirky place. You go back to like the origins of the neighborhood in, uh, you know, the late 19th century. It was always a quirky place during prohibition. That was a neighborhood where, um, uh, you know, there, there are multiple reports in, in uh, the, uh, uh, you know, previous issues of what, you know, became the news journal, uh, you know, uh, at, journal. yeah, evening journal, morning news, uh, Adam is the first draft of history and I am like the second, third or fourth draft of history. I rely so much on news journal reporting, uh, and have a subscription to their archives and I use it every day. And it's, um, you know, during prohibition, that was where, um, there are always reports of parties and, uh, you know, some reports of, you know, one report actually rather of a woman getting, uh, taken away in a wheelbarrow as the uh, cops showed up. 
Um, there used to, that was also um, where a lot of brewers used to live. Over by uh, the kind of like Fifth and Scott Street area, where there's um, this kind of like newer development of uh, townhomes, or at least it's newer than the neighborhood, uh, that used to be a brewery. Uh, over there, there was one that got torn down um, during the building of I ninety five, the Diamond yeah, State Brewery. Well, that's the one that had the, the had the statue there. Yeah, and King, Adam was like seventh and Adams. Yeah. Yes, that they're trying to yeah that they're trying, so that was a big brewery there back in the in the uh, the early twentieth century. And um, the house and uh, if you if you're on Tilton Park looking towards Seventh Street, um, both houses on either corner uh, belong to brewer magnates who like owned. Uh, you know, one or I don't think I don't think it was a Diamond State brewery, but one of some of the breweries are in the area. We used to have like 30 breweries or something like that in the city. Don't quote me on 30. It was probably left. You'd have to interview John Medkeff for that, who's the beer historian. That probably uh, be a great again, podcast. if you guys want to uh, if you guys want to <laughs> fact check this and uh, make any complaints, nobody nobody cares. <laughs> so uh, so the 60 so the the essay you wrote on the 68 riots has it ever has it been published? Uh, yeah, actually, it was published by the uh, uh, Delaware Art Museum. I, I was pitching that everywhere, and then uh, they ended up picking it up because it was part of their 1968 programming. Oh, yeah. Okay, right, because um, they just did a big, uh, last year, of course, they did, a, they did a big thing there, a big exhibit and all of that. Yeah. And then I put it out, because I, have, uh, I retain publishing rights, so I also put it online, uh, oh, nice. just like self-publishing under Medium. Yeah, no, and I'm, I'm interested in that only because, like, I'm from here. So I was, I was born in 74, but of course, my parents, my aunts and uncles, like at that time when Wilmington was big, yeah, people got went and shopped on Market Street. They shopped on the ninth on Ninth Street, um, you know, Al Sporting Goods and all that. So when that happened, and the the National Guard occupied the city, it was. It's a, it's a it's a it's a big story here that kind of faded away for a long time. Well, I think there needs to be a a, a, a clarification because they didn't occupy the entire city. Just they, neighborhood, correct? They occupied correct. West Center City, uh, West Center City to Fourth Street down um, to about Market Jackson uh, yeah. over. Yeah, they um it was really it was really very specific and um you know That's true. and it's uh and I you know as you know from what you know, the research that I've done I think it just uh. A lot of the crime that you see in that area of Wilmington and the blight, uh, you know, more or less directly, you know, directly correlates to what happened in that neighborhood. I, completely, uh, I, and, I agree with all of that. And uh, the, you know, disinvestment by the city, um, uh, you know, using urban renewal basically as an excuse to try and, uh, you know, drive out low income families. And you're ultimately, uh, uh, you know, Wilmington. And this was this is not my own. Um, uh, observation. I can't remember his name, but he was a columnist for the News Journal back in um, back in the '60s. Said the, something along the lines of, "We're creating new slums faster than we, you know, faster than we can um, like rehabilitate the old ones, or something to that extent, uh, because our urban planning is so poor." And that was, um, and then when you had the '68 riots, and then the National Guard occupation. So, right, uh, you know, so think about this for a second. Um, uh, there were curfews. If you're caught out after curfew, uh, you could be put in jail. And then let's say you don't have uh, money for bail, or let's say you're on your way to work and you miss work because you were in jail, uh, and then you end up losing your job, right? So, or you have, um, you know, police and uh, National Guardsmen occupying a certain part of the city. And one person during that entire time was killed, but there was 
just like kind of like widespread, of course, like distrust. And so you then also like breed this distrust between people and and the government. And it's, uh, you know, and those are the types of things that last for lifetimes. And oh. I think that that is and then subsequent lifetimes as well. And I think that we still see that distrust. And sometimes I think, well, I think for good measure or for good reason, you know, we still continue to see that distrust and mistrust in Wilmington. Yeah, I mean, Carl, Carl wrote something several months ago. We still haven't gotten to it, but I found it fascinating. And we'll plug it. Let's put it in the, put it in the show notes. <laughs> and uh, it's actually related to something else we're going to plug at the end, the new, the new video series that just came out. But <clears throat> it was basically about the idea of suburbia, like what it was. Like at one point, Cool Springs was suburbia. Oh yeah, we have like at there one was some point. This is suburb. It was just like there was the city center, like the market sort of center, and then that these houses on a hill, uh, in in Cool Springs and Quaker Hill and and Hilltop. <clears throat> then this was a suburbia here in the Highlands and and in, in Forty Acres and Highlands is still suburbia. <laughs> Highlands is worse than suburbia. <laughs> <laughs> but but again, a lot of this, a lot of the issues that explain this sort of. Uh, move <clears throat> sort of explain how like what you said we we just left uh, some neighborhoods to rot with nothing and we didn't care like it was like we d didn't care about anything that was going on we, we, we just put the we, we had a, a police state there and that's uh, exactly what it was it was a police force yeah. yes it was it was martial law the 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 the, the, the National Guard uh, had West Center City and, and parts of Hilltop, probably parts of Market Street. I know the I know that on Fourth and Market, there's a lot of pictures of of of, of uh, National Guardsmen. Some had fixed bayonets, you know, like that. that there was martial law in Wilmington, if you, and, and there's all and unless we reckon with the things that we've done and sort of reckon with the history of what suburbia is now, what exurbia is, and sort of the thing. That we're never going to get anywhere. People don't like to think about this history, uh, but it, it, it's it's extremely interesting to me, and I'm very happy that you have written about it. I know um, there's several folks from the News Journal who have been fascinated by it because they've been doing stories in Wilmington. Right, and, Cormier and it, and did a it, really it comes, great story on on. I thought it was great. West Center City. They've done other stories about how Building 95 and split, basically digging that trench through the middle of the city. Margie, really did a lot about lot to that. Margie Fishman had a good one on West Center City about three or four years ago too. There's there's something about running an interstate through a historic neighborhood. Yeah. And to take it back home, um, back in New Orleans, there there's a neighborhood uh, through which a interstate now runs. Uh, and to put it in there, they had to bulldoze a lot. And a part of what they bulldozed was these ancient beautiful oak trees and it's one of my favorite ways to get home out of downtown because when you drive past it on the huge concrete pillars they've painted these oak trees and they're not gorgeous they're not they're not they're, Rem, they're not horrible. they're not rembrandt oak trees but it's this reminder that like you killed something ancient to put this super modern highway through predominantly african-american neighborhood too right they're all over the world. yeah but yes but yes i remember reading about that yeah. it was it was it i mean and much much has been written and said about the effects of doing just that and uh 
I mean, I was in Shreveport, Louisiana for five years doing, uh, in the very beginning of my journalism career, and we had the same questions. Well, we'd really like to complete this highway that we've been trying to complete for 20 years, and we'd like to just run it through this neighborhood and you know buy up everybody's property. Well, a lot of people don't think that's necessarily, you know, the most uh, the most generous way to deal with people who've been living there generation after generation. Yeah, of course not. Well, the last topic today is is also um, centered uh, down there in Louisiana. Uh, today is the is it the fifth of June or sixth of June? What's the date today? December sixth of June. Sixth. Thank you. 6th of June, uh, 2019. Uh, we have to say rest in peace, and I'm gonna I'm gonna open another beer to a real one. Uh, I forget his real name, but Dr. John Mac Rebenack. Mac Rebenack, Dr. John, 77 years old. 77. Rest in peace, brother. Died today of a heart attack. I have. Uh, it was it's the right place at the wrong time. <laughs> I, I actually, uh, doc, Dr. John went to my high school uh, for a time. Oh, nice. uh, he and I were at the same place and. I had the good fortune to to see him multiple times. Uh, the very first time I saw Dr. John, and if we have time for a story. We actually have all the time in the world. Oh, fantastic. The first time that I got to see Mac, open quote, Dr. John, close quote, Rabinette, was uh, after Hurricane Katrina uh, at the Voodoo Fest, which is the second big music festival in town after the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. Anyway, Dr. John was was there, and he was playing his piano, and he had his whole band. It wasn't the Night Trooper band. He hadn't gotten back on that shit yet, but he just kept talking about Katrina and about the government and about George W. Bush, and I don't know if this was a Mac Rebinac classic, but he just kept saying, they can eat my drawers. <laughs> and, I mean, he would say it after every time he had something to say about this man or that man, this agency or that. They can eat my drawers. And I was just like, they can't eat my drawers. <laughs> you know? They really can. And it was, it was really an interesting thing because Dr. John has had this uh, long history. I mean, he was, he had become famous and then become infamous long before I was even born. Uh, but he really revived a, you know, in himself, I mean, a sense of political and social outspokenness in his later years that he didn't necessarily have when he was shooting smack in the bathroom, uh, all day (laughs) when he was getting in broken bottle fights. You know what I mean? I mean, he, he, but I mean, he talked out against the BP oil spill. He talked out against what happened after Katrina. I mean, he had he had a voice, and he kind of also had a popularity resurgence, partly because uh, boomers were able to afford things, which was is really good for your street cred when you were big in the 1960s. Well, we've we've covered a lot of this problem. I mean, I'm I'm glad that Dr. John had a resurgence because boomers had a had a uh, resurgence in their wealth, but uh, it's caused a lot of other problems that we could definitely do without. Listen, I'm not I'm not here to to promote the boomers. I do love Dr. John though. I'm I'm going to agree with you on both of those things. The only reason I pointed that out is we just did an episode called We Have a Boomer Problem. (laughs) And it was kind of revolved around exactly what you're talking about. But the one thing the boomers were good about is they had good taste in music. uh, And and then they just forgot what it meant. They forgot what it meant. 
Yeah, well, it's, it, kind well, of. I think that's actually very good. They had great taste in culture, uh, and then they forgot what it was. Well, I don't want to get too political here, uh, but sometimes, you know, when Chris Christie talks about how much he loves Bruce Springsteen, I just wonder. I was like, do you do you think Bruce Springsteen was talking to you? <laughs> like, <laughs> what do you think Bruce Springsteen thinks about you? Like, I just don't understand some of that, but... You know, I mean, it's an interest. Actually, it's a really interesting thing, and I mean, um, you know, rest in peace, boomers who are, you know, soon to be gone. Um, but the when I saw them, I saw Dr. John in Shreveport um, because I actually made it a habit to see him as often as I could because I knew for a fact that that smack shooting old man would die at some point in his time. Well, we're um, all gonna go. Well, like, just like, just like, hopefully soon. Curtis Red, uh, Curtis Mayfield's uh, birthday was earlier this week, and uh, his his uh, famous lyric was, "If if there's a hell below, we're all gonna go." <laughs> so Hell's, we're we're hell. all we're all going at some point. It was, but it was. Uh, I saw him in Shreveport, and I saw him at the Municipal Auditorium in Shreveport, Louisiana, which, if you don't know, is absolutely historic in terms of its musicosity for white people. Um, it was where, you know, Johnny Cash, it was Louisiana Hayride. This is where the Louisiana Hayride was, was, was produced. And Johnny Cash, Elvis, you know, uh, everybody, you know, Cliff, you know, they all came through. Um, but he was playing there at this historic theater and he was at the time, he was getting kind of old. His band leader was really running the show and she was an amazing trumpet. I'm sorry. Uh, what's that one? Trombone. Trombone. Well, I saw that. I saw her with that band when she led that band at the queen theater before it was the new queen. Uh, one of the times I've seen Dr. John two or three times, but I saw that particular band because the, the whole rumor was that she was like a younger woman and she was like the band leader and it was the whole thing. It was like some weird thing going on. I don't know if that's true, but I saw that iteration of the band. Well, I loved I loved that iteration of the band when I saw it because even like it was almost like they brought the old man out to do his thing, but she was really running the show and it was and she was good at it. I mean, as far as managing the band. And then, you know, having her own thing going, too. And I don't know her name. I'm sorry, I don't. I don't, but, I don't, I don't remember either. But she was she was really good. But, I mean, they brought Dr. John out. Dr. John sat down. I was being <laughs> You know, you try to remember what song he was singing, but it was good. Yeah. And uh, so let me cut this now before I forget. Uh, because it's fucking dope as fucking hell. I, I, I listened to it this morning. Um Carl is producing, and I don't know how many episodes there'll be. I don't know how, how long it'll run. Um, I hope to sort of cross cross pollinate it uh, on the Patreon page, and I'm going to pump it up. Uh, it's a YouTube channel uh, called Commons Academy. Uh, we're givers here at the bunker. We give and we give, and we're trying, we're trying to teach you in the most basic way what's happening. And this is a wonderful way. You just click on the video, and you just watch it and listen to Carl tell you the story. It's how, that easy. How can they find you on uh, Twitter, Carl? Carl on Twitter is at K Foster Stomberg. The YouTube channel is Commons Academy. The first video was posted today. Uh, it's like a it's like a, 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 a an introduction, a prologue. It's about a 10-minute prologue about sort of why it's important to delve into the history of the left, uh, how there's some sort of, uh, there's there's a lot of um, interesting topics about when sort of leftist politics or leftist uh, economic theory began, 
Did it begin before Marx? Did it begin with Marx? Did it begin after Marx? Did it begin with the New Deal, et cetera, et cetera? But we will link to it in the show notes. And uh, you guys are going to love it. It's good. Watch the first one. Keep watching it. I don't know how often um, they're going to be posted, um, but they're good. And I also saw a, uh, I saw a picture of a book that I lent uh, to Carl in the thing, so I feel like I've contributed to it in some way. Um, Jordan, uh, Adam, thanks for coming in. Uh, we'll, we'll do this again. I like having a nice casual one where you don't have to fucking get all worked up, just talk about stuff. Gentlemen, thank you for coming. We're glad to be here. You, you guys can all stay and, and hang out, but uh, you people who are listening to this, um, you need to go away. There's a, good, there's a bunch of good stuff in the show notes. There's going to be a link to uh, Commons Academy. There's going to be a link to uh, Adam DuVernay's fucking Twitter account. Uh, there's going to be a Dubbed link. Dubbed in Delaware. <laughs> Dude, Is it fine. supposed to be dubbed? <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> he's like, he just looked, he was mad. And then he, he just looked and he was like, you know what? He was talking about dialects. It's, it's fine. It just doesn't matter. Doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, there's going to be a link to uh, some of uh, Jordan's work. We don't know what, what yet. Uh, and there's no, going to be no, no link for me because I don't do anything other than fucking talking to this microphone to you people. More productive than anyone you know. Correct. <laughs> Somebody's got to watch the goddamn cr- Cricket World Cup. It's not going to watch itself. <laughs> All right. Uh, free Palestine. Lula Livre. Left is best. <laughs>